Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. So let me tell you what we're planning for this morning. I know last week I said to you that we were going to do something a little different this week. In past years, on the first Sunday of the year, we took the time to just share with each other and talk about the past year and talk about God's faithfulness to us and how we got through the past year and and everybody seemed to really enjoy that. And a couple of people asked me, are you going to do that again this year? And so I said, yes, and it was my intention to do that today. But then I realized about midweek this week that I didn't tell any of you that that's what we were going to do today. So that means that if you were to come up here and share your story, you'd just be winging it. And I don't really want a morning of just winging it. I want a morning of considered thought. I want a morning when you actually stop and think about what God has done for you over the past year and what it is that you want to share with the rest of the congregation. So for that reason, I'm warning you now that next week, that's what we're going to do. Next week, we're just going to individually share with each other, and the internet will be off, and we're just going to take some family time to talk about the faithfulness of God to us. So think about it this week. Think about what you'd like to share this week, what you'd like to share with the rest of the congregation that is God-glorifying and that builds up each other in the faith. So think about it, okay? Now, what are we going to do this morning? Well, this morning, we're going to continue our introduction then to the book of Romans. But we'll make it a little further into chapter one. Now, the reason I'm wearing the lavalier mic is because I want to tell you all a little story. Living by faith is an exciting and sometimes treacherous adventure. In the long run, it's deeply, deeply gratifying But that doesn't mean that it's not rocky along the way. When I was out in Los Angeles, you know that the congregation out there had a TV studio. And so we were very aware of broadcast Christianity, televised Christianity. We were very aware of what Praise the Lord PTL channel was doing and what TBN was doing and what different broadcast networks were doing. Tom and I both worked in the television production end out there. And so churches, by and large, know that around the middle of summer and around Christmas time, there's always going to be a dip in the giving because families are buying gifts for each other. And instead of doing their regular giving to churches, they're giving to each other. And so churches know that come December, they're going to have a hard time. So we used to be amused by watching the large broadcast Christian networks manufacture their Christmas crisis right around July. (laughs) 
because they would have to start thinking about, okay, December's coming, and of course we have to goad people into giving, and so we have to manufacture some kind of crisis because they would raise money and still do all the time on the basis of desperate need. We don't do that here at GCA. We don't create desperate need. And fortunately, for the last 17 and a half years, you all have allowed that I don't ever have to stand up here and act like a beggar. Because we've been very, very fortunate to be debt-free for the vast majority of our existence. And we live on whatever it is that God provides. Whatever God brings in, that's what we live on. I am always astounded by churches that have budgets where they've taken on so much debt that they have to make a certain number every month. And so they end up having to pound on people to give them money. So they're not really living on what God provides. They're actually telling God what it is he has to provide. And then in order to get that, they beat the sheep and fleece the flock in order to make sure they get that number. Well, fortunately... We've never had to do that here at GCA, and I'm just very, very grateful for that. Let me also say that I'm grateful to everybody here in the congregation and on the Internet that has ever given anything to the well-being of GCA through all the years. I really deeply appreciate it because that's how we keep doing what we do. So I'm just very grateful. This year, we decided to spend some money fixing up our building. And it was a fair amount of money. I keep looking at Tom because he's in charge of the money. So we spent some money. Now, fortunately, we have the money. We have enough money in the bank that we had a buffer where we knew that we could spend that money and we'd be okay. So we did. And then December hit. And then giving to GCA just took a nosedive. Now, I don't know what anybody individually gives. And I don't want to know because I don't ever want to react to anybody on the basis of what they do or do not give. But I do talk to Tom about the general health of the church. I'm aware of how we're doing. And, and I get notices from PayPal whenever someone sends me a note. If someone contributes through PayPal, but includes a little note to me, and I don't know why people think that's the optimal method of communication with me, but they do it. <laughs> they'll, they'll send something and then say, Pastor Jim, and write a nice note. So I get a notice that there's a note. And so this month has been a tough month for us financially. Between the money we spent and the money that didn't come in, our operating income took a nosedive. Now, I'm not telling you this story for that reason. There's a reason I'm telling you this story. Because the life of faith is to say, regardless of what's going on, what our circumstances are, God knows what he's doing. How often have you heard me define faith as believing that God's word is more true than your circumstances? And so we just keep plowing forward and believing that God knows what he's doing. Now, from the very beginning of GCA's existence, I have always taken the attitude that it will exist for as long as God wants it to exist. If at any point God's done with it, then we'll fold up our tents and that's the end of it. 
But if God wants it to exist, then he's going to provide for it. So I still don't come and beat on you for money. I still don't come and tell you that we have some desperate need or we're going to go off in your city if you don't give us this much money by the end of Thursday or something. We just don't play any of those games. We don't stuff your mailbox. We don't send out email. We don't, we don't do anything. We have a box on the wall over there, and when people feel compelled to give, they give. And that has served us well for 17 and a half years. People on the Internet, when they want to give, they give. And we just don't pound on people. So, life of faith. Tough month. What are we going to do? Between Wednesday and Friday of this past week, the Internet, through two gifts, gave us enough money that not only are we ahead of the average month, but we more than paid for everything we did. Because people are out there listening and being obedient when the Bible says, let him that is taught in the word share, koinonia, share with the one who teaches in all good things. Some folks take that to heart because that's a biblical command and they actually do it. They're learning from GCA, they're listening along with us, and so they're supporting us in order to keep us going. That's still not why I'm telling you this story. I called Tom. I said, hey, Tom, have you looked lately at PayPal? I got a note. Let me read you this note. So I read him the note. He goes and he looks. And then Tom said, and this is why I'm telling you this story. Tom said, why did I ever doubt? Why? Why do we ever feel like, oh, no, you know, starting to get tight. Oh, gee, you know, what What are we going to do? Oh, we seem to be moving backwards instead of forward. What do we? God knows. God knows. He knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly what he's doing in your life. He knows what your situation is. He knows your sickness. He knows your finances. He knows everything about the situation that he has sovereignly placed you in. And because he knows it, you have every reason to continue to have confidence in him, and he will provide for you. Why do we doubt? So I wanted to share that story with you because... GCA is just fine, and God is in what we're doing, and God is allowing us to continue. We live to fight another day. We're going to continue on. We're going to get out there and just keep preaching the gospel and preaching the gospel until we just can't do it anymore. And when I can't do it anymore, the young men of this church are going to stand up and do it. And this church is going to continue, and this church is going to survive as long as God wants it to survive. Why do we doubt? So there's my testimony. My testimony is God is awfully good to us. And we need to continue to be grateful to the God who has provided for us.
So this morning we are continuing with Paul's epistle to the Romans. You can turn to Romans 1. We're going to start with some very basic word definitions so that nobody ends up assuming anything and that we're all on the same page. Euangelion, you should know this word. This is the word that is translated gospel. The EU prefix is good. The euangelion means the good spiel, the good talk. And so good spiel is the way that the Old English used to translate it. And that just came into our language as the good news, the good speaking. Folks like to use this word as a word of art. They say the gospel and they just assume that you know what that means. But as you look at the way that Paul uses the word, it is a much more generic term. In other words, when Jesus was born, there was good news. There was euangelion by angels that Jesus was born. Or when Jesus was on the planet and was sending his disciples out, they were told to go out and preach the gospel of the kingdom. So it's the good news of the kingdom. We saw last week, and we're going to review it this morning, that Paul talks about the gospel of God, the good news of God. So the good news, the euangelion, those good words are defined by the subject matter that's included in the phraseology. Do you understand what I'm saying? Trying to be clear here. In other words, the euangelion of the birth of Christ is good news about the birth of Christ. The euangelion of the kingdom is the good news about the kingdom. The euangelion of God is the good news about God. Euangelion by itself has to have a reference point so that you know what the good news is about. And that's going to come into play as we continue to read the way Paul uses the language of the euangelion. Now, the second word that we need to be familiar with, I don't need to write it up on the board, but it's pronounced dunamis, and that is the word that is translated power. Paul has a lot to say in this first part of the book of Romans about the power of God. And that can mean the authority of God. That can mean the actual might of God. It's very common to hear preachers talk about the fact that the word dunamis is actually the Greek word from which we get the modern word dynamite. And then they read that idea backwards into the original word dunamis. As if when Paul was sitting writing the word dunamis, he was thinking about explosive dynamite that wouldn't be around until thousands of years later. There's just no way that Paul had that in his head when he used the word dunamis. So it would be incorrect of us to take that idea of explosive dynamite and read it backwards into dunamis. And yet, gee, that preaches well. And so you, you hear preachers all the time say, well, dunamis, you know, that's dynamite and the gospel is explosive and the explosive power of God. And, well, that's all incorrect. That's a wrong way to do word exegesis. And it's not what Paul was thinking. Thank you. Well, you're more than welcome. 
The dunamis of God actually has a wider berth than just power, and we're going to see that this morning, because Paul is going to say that the gospel, the euangelion, is the power of God unto salvation. And that language has been bandied about and misunderstood in many different ways, especially if you're saying the gospel, as a word of art, is the dynamite of God, which I've heard preached more times than I can count. So we have to understand the language. We have to dig into the words that Paul is using, but we also have to keep them in the context, not only of the other words that surround those words, that context, but we have to keep it in the historic context so that we don't end up importing 21st century ideas back into the text or back into words and then misunderstanding what was originally said. We're going to start at Romans 1.1. And I know we reviewed it last week, but we didn't get done with it. I don't know if we'll ever quite get done with it, because these first couple of phrases are just mind-boggling. And we have a tendency to just become so familiar with it that we go, yeah, yeah, that's what it says. But listen to these words for a minute. Paul a slave, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle and set apart for the good news of God, which, which good news, he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Look what Paul just did again. He did the same thing Jesus does. When Jesus said to the Pharisees, have you not heard what God said? And then he would go back and quote the scriptures. Whenever we see things like that, I emphasize the fact that the scriptures are the very word of God according to Jesus. And the things that are written in the Old Testament are prophetically the voice of God speaking to the people of Israel and to us. And so we need to pay attention to what is written and understand that those are the words that were written by inspiration through the Holy Spirit for our understanding and edification, for our growth in the knowledge of God. God gave us these words to deal with. That's why I take so much time to talk about words. What words? What do the words say? What does the text say? My ears always prick up when people say, they'll read a text and then they'll say, now what this means is, I can tell you 100% of the time what it means. It means what it says. It says what it means. Had God meant something else, he'd have said something else. He's well able to say whatever it is he wants to say. He's able to communicate his ideas. And so whenever anybody says to you, well, this means, and then they explain the meaning as something different than what it says, well, then you have every right to say, well, that's not what it says. I have to pay attention to what it says. And here Paul, right at the very beginning of this letter to the Romans, which is just so chock full of all of this theology and all this depth and all this supreme logic, he starts right out with, God's word. It starts at God's word. What did God say? And what God said, according to Paul, is he promised way in advance 
that he was going to send his son to the planet and that his son's sacrificial death was going to be sufficient for everyone who had faith, pistis, in that sacrifice by Christ. That was the way that actual righteousness came about. And he said, and that's the way it's always been. You can go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Paul certainly makes this argument in the book of Galatians. You go all the way back to the book of Genesis and you read that Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. Wow, that's an incredible exchange. Because what is it that Abraham believed? He didn't believe in the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. That hadn't happened yet. What did he believe? He believed that he was going to have a child, a son, and through that child, all the families of the earth were going to be blessed. And even though he wouldn't be alive long enough to see all the families of the earth be blessed through his progeny, nevertheless, when God said, you and your wife are too old to have a child, but you're going to have a child of promise together, and through that child, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed, Abraham believed it. That's what he believed. That was the content of his faith at that moment. He believed what God said. And because he believed what God said, God counted that to him for righteousness. God imputed righteousness to him. God judicially said, that is righteousness. The fact that you believe me, that's what righteousness is. Now, why did I go through that whole story? To say that all the way back at Genesis, there is already the telling of righteousness through faith. And that's what Paul's arguing. He's arguing about how sinful humans can be justified before God. And remember, as we saw last week, he's writing to a large Jewish audience as well as to a Gentile audience. And to the Jewish audience, they are firmly convinced that the way to get righteousness, the way to be justified before God, is to do the law. Just keep doing stuff. Just keep killing animals. Just keep observing the Sabbaths. Just keep doing all your tithes and offerings. Just keep doing all the 613 ordinances. 613 ordinances of the law. They thought that if they just kept that, they could be justified. And Paul comes along and says, you can have justification with God and eternal salvation for simple faith in the finished work of his son. That is mind-boggling. That is earth-shaking. That is 180 degrees opposite of everything that Israel has believed for the last 1,400 years. And yet, Paul would say, that's what was promised by the prophets in your own scripture. Just go back and read it. Just go back and look at what it says. Before the law ever came, Abraham was justified by faith. Then the law came and prove to you, you can't do it. Prove to you that in your own flesh, you can't be good enough, you can't be righteous enough, you can't justify yourself. But from the very beginning, God already demonstrated that righteousness comes as a result of believing what God said. And so, of course, Paul would go back to, what did God say? God said, through all his prophets, he promised Through all his prophets in the Holy Scripture, what did he promise? Verse 3, he promised his son. These are the things that he promised concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David, according to the flesh, 
So he's in the Davidic line, which means he is also the satisfaction of the Davidic covenant. And he was declared to be the son of God with dunamis, with power. What kind of power are we talking about here? Well, he had miraculous power. He healed the blind. He healed the lame. He had that kind of power. Is that what Paul's talking about here? Well, no. He's going to tell you what kind of power he's talking about. He's talking about the power of everlasting life. He says he was declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. That's the declaration. That's the power of God. The same power of God that raised Christ from the dead is the reason that you have faith in Christ. Because the resurrecting power of God through his Holy Spirit inside you brought you from your dead state to spiritually alive so that you were regenerated so that you could understand the things of God. And then he brought you faith and repentance, gifts of God, gifts of his grace. And through all of that, Paul's arguing, that's the way it's always been. God knew that. God, this was always God's plan. From the very beginning, it was always God's plan to justify people by faith in everything that God said. If he's going to give you righteousness in response to faith to what he said then you need to know what he said. Is that obvious enough? Am I alone up here? I'm technically alone up here. But, yeah, I would prefer to remain alone up here, so don't get any ideas, you guys. Yeah, but God has always said, you can't do it, you can't do it in your flesh, you can't be good enough, you can't make yourself justified or righteous enough. Righteousness is imputed to you by God. That is the exchange for faith that has always been around since the beginning but now part of what God has said part of what God has revealed is that he's doing all that through his son and his son's death burial and resurrection which constitutes Paul's idea of the gospel the gospel is the death burial and resurrection of Jesus and that believing in that having faith in that is sufficient to get you everlasting justification and righteousness. I'm just spitting out words, aren't I? I'm just, I'm just saying Christianese things. I'm just saying verbiage up here. No, I'm saying the most astounding thing you ever heard in your life, and yet you can sit there and look at me like a giant oil painting. I'm telling you the most astounding, miraculous stuff you ever heard in your stupid little life. There is no point at which anybody has ever said anything ever as good as that. That's why Paul would say, it's good news. It's you and Gellion, because it's really good news. Look, if you're anything like me, and I pray to God you're not. But if you're anything like me, you know your own depravity. There are nights I can't sleep because I know me. And I know where I've been, and I know what I've done, and I know the times that I exemplified my enemy status with God. I know all that about me. And I fall on my knees in front of him and say, it has to be grace. It has to be. Because if you're leaving it up to me, there's just no way. 
because a miss is as good as a mile. If you've broken the law in any one place, you're guilty of the whole law, according to James, and therefore it has to be an act of grace, an act of goodness that God would give you righteousness for trusting his son, for having faith in everything that God has said, the gospel of God concerning his son, that he has sent his son to be the full propitiation so that the wrath of God will not fall on you so that Paul can write, you are not appointed to wrath. And this is good news. It is. This, is, this is quality stuff. This is the stuff you could spend the rest of your silly little life on and you would never come to this. God has to reveal this to you. God has to tell this to you. And how does he do that? In his word. Which is why Paul keeps saying, what does the word say? What does scripture say? What has God said? And it's why here at GCA we just keep pounding on the word. So that we can grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord. Okay, we're never going to get anywhere if I don't start reading. I'm still reviewing last week at this point. This is like the pre-introduction to the introduction to the introduction. None of it counts against my time. Okay. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared to be the son of God with dunamis, with power, by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is the very heart and soul of all Pauline theology of Christianity. If the resurrection did not occur, then we are still in our sins and of all men most miserable. But because the resurrection happened, that is the declaration that he is in fact the son of God, which makes him absolutely everything he ever claimed to be. And therefore, we should have faith in him. We should trust him. We can trust him, not only with our day-to-day life, but with our eternity. Now, that's tough. Because we human beings are just legalists by nature. We want to do something. I want credit for something. I want a badge. I want something I can wear that says, I did this. I want some credit. Some, I want it to be 99% God, but I get something. You know that when you think about your relationship with God, you know that in the back of your mind, you've got that one time that you did that really good thing. And you're just really hoping that God saw it. And that your relationship with God is somehow going to be balanced in your favor based on that one good thing you did. Like God was saying, I don't know, you're close, but you did do that. You did feed that homeless guy one time, and boy, all right, that tipped the scales in your favor. You get no credit for the good things you did the same way you get no credit for the bad things you did. Because you don't want God to keep track of the bad things you did. And if you want him to keep track of the good things you did, then he has to balance those against the bad things you did. And you don't want him to balance that against the bad things you did because everything about you is bad. bad. Boy, you filled in that blank quick. Easy. Easy. Easy question. 
righteousness, genuine righteousness, the kind of righteousness that God alone has, the kind of righteousness that is only found in Christ of all human beings on the planet, that kind of righteousness can be imputed to you on the basis of you having faith in him. And I started a few minutes ago by saying that's tough. It's hard. Tell people, look, you can believe that you're eternally secure based on Simple trust in Christ. Go. Do it. That, that was part of the problem that the Pharisees had. They wanted to do something. Even the people who came to Jesus and said, what good thing must I do? He said that you believe in the one who God sent. That's what you do. But people want to do something. I want to do something. Steve, you want to do something? Yeah, we want to do something. We all just naturally, innately want to do something. It's like an insurance policy so we can say, well, at least I've got this. At least I did that. At least that stands as proof, genuine proof that, that I love God. But where eternity is concerned, you've got nothing but filthy rags to go present before God. Amen. And you think you're going to walk in front of him and say, here, I got you this. I got my filthy, bloody, ugly rags. Let me in on the basis of this. You got nothing. And so it has to be grace. As hard as that is to get a hold of, to let go of yourself completely. Okay, now it gets even more complicated. How many people in this room would say uh, you've got a healthy ego? <laughs> if you didn't raise your hand, it's because your ego is too healthy. <laughs> You actually egocentrically said, I don't have to admit to having a healthy ego. Yeah, that's, that's the next problem. Genuine Christianity says, let go of yourself. Stop thinking it's about you. Stop gazing into your navel looking for some righteousness. Stop thinking that you're possibly going to achieve some level of righteousness that God is going to accept. You just can't do it. And that's so hard for our egocentric, self-centered little people to believe. It's so hard on our minds. It's so hard on our flesh. It's all part of our sin nature that we believe me first. For heaven's sakes, people write books like, I'm okay, you're so-so. I mean, there are people who are out there saying... Get well, be well, but get well by loving yourself. Get well by knowing yourself better. Get well by, by thinking of yourself better. All of that is contrary to genuine Christianity. And that's why it's so hard for us to give up on ourselves and take sides with God against ourselves and admit that we're just sinful and have nothing and that all our righteousnesses are filthy rags. Admit that and come to him on the basis of your son, just your son, faith in your son, the finished work of your son, and I am going to cast myself out into eternity on that thread, on that belief, on that promise that if I have faith in the son, God is going to give me eternal righteousness. And that's marvelous. That's earth-shattering. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God 
with power by the resurrection from the dead. Oh, by the way, I may never get past this. By the way, what did Jesus say? He said, no man takes my life from me. But I have the power to lay my life down. I have the power to take my life up again. That's all the power of God. That's the the everlasting authority of God. He said, I have this command from my father. That's why he laid his life down for you. And that's why he took his life up again. Because it was the father's decision and the father's will that Christ would come and do that. That's why this is good news about the father. That's why Paul would say this is the gospel of God. And the gospel of God, the euangelion of God is concerning his son. And then we can talk about the euangelion of the son. Because this is all just good news on top of good news. He was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all Gentiles. What an interesting word, the obedience of faith. We talked about it a little bit last week. When we think obedience, we think do stuff. When my kids were little, and to some degree even to this day, I wanted obedience out of my kids because I had authority over my kids. And so usually we equate obedience with doing things. Be obedient. If I said to you two guys, be obedient, you would think, well, that means do whatever grandpa says, right? But that's not the obedience that Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the obedience of faith, which means instead of the obedience of good works, stop your good works and be obedient to the reality that righteousness comes through faith. Learn the obedience of faith. Learn to be obedient to what God has revealed in his word. And what he has revealed is that righteousness comes through faith. Now be obedient to that. And what that means is don't tell people get good. Don't tell people work harder. Don't tell people that they can gain favor with God through being better. That's not being obedient to the word. Being obedient to the word and being obedient to the faith that is demonstrated in the word is to actually trust Christ completely, trust God in everything he has said, and trust that the finished work of Christ is sufficient for your eternity. And your ego doesn't want to. And your flesh doesn't want to. And so Paul has to say, be obedient to that. Because I promise you, before the end of the day, your flesh is going to rise up again. Your flesh may rise up and say, you can do it. You can do it. You can do it. I cannot do it, but you can do it. Do it. (laughs) Get out there and do it. Or your flesh might rise up in you and go, oh, woe is me. Oh, what am I going to do? I truly am genuinely sinful. Oh, how could God save a sinner like me? Ever had that thought? How could God save somebody as corrupt as me? Okay, go back to the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith says that for faith in the finished work of Christ, you can have genuine righteousness. This is God's work. It's not your work. Therefore, you can trust God, who has proven himself to be trustworthy. 
You can trust him with your eternity by being obedient to faith that will result in everlasting righteousness. So that obedience not only will keep you from despair, but that obedience will also keep you from your ego. So be obedient to the faith. Got it? Got it. Through whom, through Jesus Christ, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his namesake. This is all God's doing. This is God's enterprise. Among whom, verse 6, you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus endeth the review of last week. Now we're starting into the new stuff. Let's start at verse 8. First, says Paul, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Is it worth pointing out that their faith was not proclaimed throughout the whole world? If I mean by whole world, absolutely every corner of every inch of the whole planet. Instead, in Paul's language, you have to look again contextually and understand that what he's talking about is the whole known world, the whole known region the whole region where the Christian faith had spread at that point, in all of those regions, your faith is talked about. Now, why would that be? Again, why would people be so enamored with the faith that has erupted in Rome? Well, I gave you a clue last week when I pointed out that Christianity got to Rome before Paul did. Paul's writing this letter to Rome, and he's about to say, I want to come see you. Up till now, I've been hindered. I'm going to try to get to you. How did Christianity erupt in Rome and even get to the household of Caesar before Paul ever got there? Well, you can see why this would be the subject of some amount of discussion and, and talk of the faith that has encroached on the halls of power in Rome, especially because Jerusalem, all of that Middle East area, is all under the jurisdiction and the hand of Rome. And yet now Christianity has broken into the household of Caesar. You can see why people are talking about this. Paul says, your faith is being proclaimed throughout the world. For God, actually this sentence is, for God is my witness. But he's going to define God. He says, for God, whom I serve in my spirit and the NASB says, in the preaching of the euangelion of his son, but actually the words preaching of the are in italics in the NASB. They're added by the translators. What Paul actually wrote was, for God, whom I serve in my spirit in the gospel of his son. So think about that. Through everything he's been through, he sees himself as serving the son of God through the preaching of the gospel, by spreading the gospel, by taking on these slings and arrows, by being stoned and left for dead outside Lystra, or, or from being shipwrecked, or from being imprisoned, all, all the things that he goes through, he said, is part of the service to the Son and the way that he serves the Son of God 
is by telling his gospel, telling his good news. And he's already defined for us the essence of what that good news is. Righteousness comes by faith. Obedience to the faith. And so, let me not put too fine a point on this, but, but if you're preaching anything other than the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for righteousness, you're not actually serving the Son. I don't want to put, again, too fine a point on this, but you're doing damage to Christianity. Shut up. Was that too fine a point? Because yeah. I hear preachers all the time saying stuff that you can't find in the Bible. And they say they're preaching Christianity and then they end up preaching legalism. They say they're preaching Christianity and then they end up preaching some kind of Mideast spiritualism. That's not Christianity. That's not the gospel. That's not the essence of what it is. So again, just sit down, be quiet. Because obedience to the Son and the way to honor the Son, the way to glorify the Son is to tell what the Son did and to tell that salvation is wrapped up in what the Son did. Have faith in the finished work of Christ. And that's the way you get righteousness. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the gospel, in the euangelion of his Son, that God is my witness. As to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. So he's yet to be to Rome. He wants to get to Rome, but notice the way he described his praying. I, I just like Paul so much. Even in the small details, he can't help but let his theology influence every word. For instance, here's what I'm talking about. He makes prayers all the time for the people in Rome, and he makes prayers all the time that he can come to Rome. And he's going to describe why he wants to come to Rome. And he wants to fellowship with them, and he wants to bring them some spiritual gift, and, and he wants to be encouraged by them, and they can be encouraged by him. Those are all good reasons to want to get to Rome. And so he says, I pray all the time, making my request, if perhaps I could come see you. But in the midst of that, he says, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. So even though he puts his requests before God, he always includes, if that's the will of God. If God is willing then that's going to happen. So what does that tell us? That tells us something very important about prayer. We go to God and we make our requests known, the same way Paul said to do. Make your requests known with thanksgiving, but always understand that what happens ultimately is God's will. I hear folks sometimes say, God doesn't answer my prayers. I say, I think that's the answer to your prayer. But he's responding according to his will. Let me see if I can make this more clear. I'm going to refer to my kids again. Hi. Hi. Yeah, my kids. One there, one back there. They would come to me when they were young, and they would say things like, Dad, may we please, whatever it is, fill in the blank. May we please have chocolate for dinner. And usually I'd say yes to that one. 
May we please do something? Okay, as soon as they ask me, may we please, I know what their desire is. But it's still up to me. And I know more, as the dad, about the outcome than they do. And so I'm thinking about their best interests when I make my decision. So my whole point is they understood this very basic principle that Paul's talking about here. They understood that I had authority in their decision making, but that my answer was going to be based on my knowledge of them, what's good for them, and what the possibilities are. Okay, same thing with God. You go to God and you pray to God for what it is you desire. Paul desired to go to Rome. He wanted to go to Rome. There's nothing wrong with him going to Rome. There's every good reason for him to want to go to Rome. He's going to list all the good reasons that he should go to Rome. And yet, he leaves it up to the will of God because God knows whether Paul needs to be in Rome or whether he needs to be in Corinth where he's writing this letter from. God knows what he's doing. God is in the enterprise of building his church. And he determines where people are supposed to be. So he says, starting in verse 9, For God, whom I serve in the Spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. That's an interesting phrase that Paul uses right there. Spiritual gift is actually a pneumatikos, or is it? Uh, yeah, it's pneumatikos charisma. And you know that the word charis is the word grace. And charisma then is translated as gift because it means I want to give you something spiritual that doesn't cost you anything. I want to give you a gift by the Spirit of God. And we don't know exactly what that was. We don't know if he was talking about healing, whether he's talking about speaking in tongues, whether he's talking about greater knowledge and understanding of the things of God. Those are all spiritual gifts. And he said, I want to be among you because I want to impart these spiritual gifts to you. That's a perfectly good reason to want to be there. But then he says that he also would be encouraged by being there with them. For I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. What does he mean by just established? He's talking about that you're going to be firm in the faith, that you're going to be established in the faith, that you're going to be firm in believing in Christ. You're going to see for yourself these spiritual gifts and you're going to recognize that this is the supernatural reality of God and you're going to be built up and established in your faith. Verse 12, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while I'm among you. Each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. There's a perfect example of why we need each other. Because by our mutual faith, we are encouraged, we are built up in the faith. How often have you found yourself feeling very low feeling like maybe God isn't there. And then you've come here among the saints. And you end up being encouraged again. 
and you feel like, I can get through another day. I'm not going to give up yet. I'm going to hang on. That's all part of this perseverance thing. The reason that we're going to stay in the faith until the end or the method that God uses to keep us in the faith until the end is each other. And I love the fact that Paul didn't just say, I'm the authority here and I'm coming to you to impart some spiritual gift to you because I'm the important one. He says, by being with you, I'm going to be encouraged. You're going to be encouraged. I'm going to be encouraged. We're going to be encouraged mutually by our mutual faith. And that's the way genuine Christianity works. And that's the way a genuine church works. And that's also what Paul says here, that we are all built up in the faith, each of us by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I promise you I'm getting almost to the point I want to be at. Did you believe me? I trust you. You trusted me on that one? I like it. Somebody had to. Yeah. No one else did. But... I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that oftentimes I planned to come to you, and I've been prevented thus far, but I planned to come to you in order that I might obtain some fruit among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I think what he's referring to there is that in his missionary journeys, as he's gone church to church, Mostly Gentile churches, they have then supported him in the going to the next church. And so this word fruit might mean I expect some help and support from you. It might mean I want to see you growing in the faith and producing the spiritual fruit that shows that you have genuine faith in Christ. But his reason for wanting to be among them is to see that growth in them, to see that they are bearing fruit But then he says, verse 14, I am under obligation. So he sees this job as, I used the phrase a couple weeks ago that I'm on marching orders from my commander. I got that from here. Paul says, I'm doing this because I'm under compulsion. God is my commander. God has put me under obligation And so I'm doing this. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. We don't even know who those categories are anymore. Uh, Greeks love wisdom. The whole Greek culture, the whole Hellenized culture was all about speaking Greek, sharing concepts in Greek. They believed that that was the highest form of human communication. To some degree, God seems to have agreed because the whole New Testament is written in Koine Greek. So to some extent, they're correct. But then there were also people on the planet who did not speak Greek, who were not Hellenized. Those people were considered lesser than. Barbarian simply means someone who is not intelligent, who is not Hellenized, who is considered less than by the Greek society. He says, I'm under obligation to them as much as I'm under obligation to you smart people. As much as I'm under obligation to you Gentile Greeks, I am under obligation to the barbarians. In other words, I'm under obligation to absolutely every human being on the planet who will listen. I'm going to tell them about Christ. I'm going to tell them the good news. Because God's no respecter of persons. God doesn't care what your estate is, high or low. 
He doesn't care what language you speak. He speaks all the languages. So he says, I'm under obligation to the Greeks and to the barbarians. And then parallel, so that you understand it, both to the wise and to the foolish. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. In Rome, there was a very two-tiered class system. There was no middle class the way that we have a middle class here in America. You were either a Roman free citizen or you were in servitude. You were in bondage in some way. You were the lower classes. You were the unwashed masses. And usually the people in the upper classes had nothing to do with the people in the lower classes. I tell you all that because what Paul just said is, again, earth-shattering. He said, I'm under obligation to those unwashed dredges of the earth to tell them good news. To tell them the news that they can have freedom in Christ. That they can have eternal redemption through Christ for their faith. Now this whole phrase, preach the gospel, is actually just one Greek word. Euangelizo, the same way that I wrote euangelion up here. Euangelizo is the verb of preaching the gospel. And there are several words that also have this euangelion root, like the person who actually preaches the euangelion is called the euangelistus. That just moved into the English language as evangelist. That's where we get the word evangelist. So in other words, the evangelist, by definition, preaches the evangel. The evangelist preaches the good news. That's why he has an office in the church. God gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Evangelists are those who go out and preach that evangel, that good news, that euangelion. And so he's using that word, euangelizo. It has that gospel right in it. He says, for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are at Rome. Because I am not embarrassed of the gospel. The NASB says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Think about it. Think about what's happened to Paul. Think about all the enemies he has. Don't forget that in Rome, this is considered a superstition that found its way into Rome. And for accepting Jesus Christ as son of David and Messiah, Paul has lost everything. He's lost all of his status, all his authority. And on top of that, he's hated by the Gentiles because he goes into areas and preaches that Christ is God, meaning that Caesar's not God, and meaning that their various pantheons of gods are not really gods, that there's only one God and his son Christ. So everywhere that Paul is going, he is causing trouble. Everywhere that he's going, he's making enemies. And so there are people who are going to say to him, you know, it's not worth it. You know, that thing you're preaching, look at what it's done to you. Look at how it's beat you down. Look at how, look at how it's made you a pariah in society. It's just not worth it. Anybody ever heard that one? I got an email not that long ago saying that Christianity is a crutch that weak people have to lean on. Yeah, the opiate of the masses. Yeah. 
So Paul is out there preaching it into a society that unlike American society, which at least has a working familiarity with Christianity, he's preaching it in a society where nobody knows it till he says it, till he brings it up. He doesn't even have the Old Testament to work with when he's dealing with Gentiles. When he's talking to Jews, at least he can say, well, the scripture says. But he's talking to Gentiles who have no reference point. He's starting clean with them. And they're believing all kinds of crazy things. In fact, he's going to list, we won't get to it today, but he's going to list all the various sins and decrepitude that the Gentiles are involved in. And they even have gods and temples that include temple prostitution and murder and all kinds of corruption and thievery. And and that's their religion. And he's walking in and saying, No, Jesus is different, and Jesus is about good works, and Jesus is about you're going to be a changed man from within. And he's he's preaching an entirely different religion to them, but he's doing it without any reference point. He has no starting place with them. So he has to trust that simply the proclamation of the good news is going to be sufficient to convert some people. He has to believe that it's up to God. He has to believe that the spirit and the power of God is going to enlighten some people to pay attention to what he's saying and adhere to it and be obedient to the faith because he can't talk people into this. The the common notion that it's up to us to talk people into Christianity like collecting scalps on our belt or something That's common because we see it so often. That's why we know it and even think that it's an option. It's because we're aware that there are people out there doing it. Paul doesn't have any of that. Paul doesn't have TBN. Paul doesn't have PTL Club. Paul doesn't have TV and radio and satellite. Paul is dealing with human beings one-on-one who are deeply, deeply involved in and committed to their corruption. So Paul starts talking about have faith in Christ in order to gain righteousness. He's saying that to people who don't even long for righteousness. And he's telling them, you can have everlasting peace that passes understanding. And you can receive justification and righteousness through faith in Christ, the Jewish Messiah, the son of David. This is a tough sell. That's all I'm getting at. This is a hard thing to tell people. So he has to be convinced that it's God that's going to make the change. It's God who's going to enlighten their minds and their hearts as it is to this very day. So how is that going to happen? How are they going to be enlightened? How are they going to come to this faith? What has to happen? Well, he's about to tell us. For my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome Because I'm not ashamed, I'm not embarrassed of the gospel, for it is the dunamis of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So what does he mean? It is the power of God. Remember I began about an hour ago by saying we have to look at this word dunamis and understand it 
based on its context. You can look at Greek dictionary after Greek dictionary, as I have. And you will see that most of them say, in this place, in Romans 1.16, Paul seems to be referring to what they call an effective means. In other words, God is going to save some people. We know, because we know the rest of Paul's theology, we know that he chose people before the foundation of the world. We know that he wrote their name down in the Lamb's Book of Life, because we know John's writing. We know the election of grace, and we know predestination. We know that those who he predestined, he called and justified and glorified. We, we know all that. So what does he mean when he says the gospel is the power unto salvation? Well, what he means is that it is the effective means through which God saves people. Let's put it this way. So, Justin, have you ever been on the road to Damascus, specifically, and then bright light comes down from heaven, knocks you down, blinds you, and says to you, Jason, Jason, why do you persecute me? Is that the way you were brought to faith in Christ? No. Anybody want to say that's the way they were brought to Christ? No. It's the way Paul was brought to Christ. But then he didn't go out and preach. The way you get saved is you go to Damascus. And on your way there, if you're under a bright light, then you're going to be saved. Instead, he says, the means that God uses in saving people now is the euangelion, is the good news of his son. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Yeah. So by saying that the gospel is the power of God to salvation, he's saying in order to save people, God uses the gospel as the effective means to bring people to faith. That's why we preach the gospel. That's why we tell the gospel. We sang this morning, I love to tell the story. It wasn't a mistake that we sang that song. The reason I keep preaching the gospel to you over and over and over again is because it's effective. Mm -hmm. It has dunamis. It has the ability to bring you to the faith that will get you everlasting righteousness. And I'm doing you no favor if I don't tell you that. If I don't take the time to explain to you that the word of God says that the finished work of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is the good news of righteousness through faith. If I don't tell you that, I'm damning your soul. That's a whole lot bigger than not doing you a favor. And the reason I keep saying it and saying it and saying it is because Paul kept saying it and saying it and saying it because it is the very power of God, the very effective means through which God is saving some people. And the reason you're here and the reason you love to hear it again and again and again and again is because you like the idea that God is effectively saving your soul. Amen. Yeah. We're nearly done. Why then is it the effective means through which God brings salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek? For in it, in the euangelion, in the gospel, in it, 
the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God. Don't you like that phrase? It's hard for me to imagine that Micah is ever going to be as righteous as God. And April's having a tougher time with it. (laughs) And yet, the righteousness of God is revealed to us in the euangelion. From faith to faith. Now, you can read commentary after commentary. Some people will say that that's... That what Paul is talking about there is from the faith of God to the faith of the believers. Or it's from the faith of the church to the faith of the people who are being preached to. Or or from the faith of the preacher to the people who are being preached to. or, Or some category like that. I don't agree with any of those because of the quote that Paul adds at the very end here. In order to demonstrate what he's talking about. He takes this quote out of Habakkuk 2.4. That the just shall live by faith. So whatever we say about from faith to faith has to correspond with, but the righteous, the just, shall live by faith. Because that's the quote that he goes with to define from faith to faith. In the Greek, ek is the word ek pistis. And that means out of. So he's saying out of faith with regard to faith. That would be the, the truest Greek translation of it. So, here's what I think he's saying, and I think you'll agree, and we'll call it a morning. Paul likes phrases like, the gospel has the scent of death to death, and to others it has the scent of life to life. What does he mean by the repetition of those words? Well, I think he means it has the scent of death and nothing but death, or it has the scent of life and nothing but life. And I think what he's saying here is the righteousness of God is revealed out of faith, through faith, and nothing but faith. Because as it's written, the just shall live by faith. In other words, he's preaching sola fide. He's saying faith and faith alone. It's not your works. It's not your effort. It has to be by faith. It has to be by grace. It has to be God's doing, you can't do it. And he concludes by saying this is what's always been in the scripture. Go back to Habakkuk 2.4 and you're going to find the just shall live by faith. So this is the way that God has always worked. It's in the scripture from the very beginning. All the way back at Abraham being justified by believing in God and what God has said. This has always been the way that God has dealt with people. Do you want... This is you I'm talking to. Do you want, yes, every one of you, do you want everlasting righteousness? Yes. Yes. I'm glad there was a unanimous agreement on that one. How do you get it? We all agreed we want it. Yeah, I want everlasting righteousness. Yes. I prefer to stand before God and not fry. I prefer that God not send me into outer darkness. I prefer that I not go to the place where the worm never sleeps and where the fires never quench. That's just too scary. I want everlasting righteousness. I want the righteousness of Christ imputed to my account because I know I can't do it. I know it's not in me. So I want everlasting righteousness. I've told you this morning from the words of Paul, from the very words of God, from the very words of the Bible, how you get it. 
You get it by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Give up on yourself. You can't do it. Just admit that. Get over it. Get past it. You got nothing. And trust utterly and completely in the finished work of Christ. And for that faith, God has promised you everlasting righteousness. And that, my friends, is really good news. Amen. Are there questions? Yes, sir. Uh, I want to make sure I understood what you're talking about when you discussed uh, credit. Are we going to get credit for our bad works or credit for our good works that, that that doesn't happen? But is there not this uh, concept that Paul talks about, eternal rewards? Now, the, all the bad stuff we did is taken care of by Christ. God doesn't count that against us. But can Jesus even talked about make sure you do your good works in secret. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So there is this idea that we're supposed to do good works. Unquestionably. So Unquestionably. And, and in fact, about when you talk about credits. yeah, because what Paul writes is that we're going to walk in the good works that were ordained by God for us to walk in. So where the credit is concerned, if he's the one who ordained the good works, who gets the credit? It's still God who works through us. So we do good works, but we do those good works in response to what God has already done for us. So what I mean by credit, to be specific, is you don't get credit toward salvation, toward personal righteousness by the things you've done. The same way that if you're in Christ, your bad works don't get held against you where salvation is concerned. But as saved people, do we do good works? Yeah, absolutely. We walk in the good works that we're ordained to walk in. Yeah, absolutely. So it was all in reference to salvation. Salvation. Right. Good clarification, though. Yes, ma'am. May I make a comment in relation to that? That it's just as when Paul was saying in Corinthians, don't you know who you are? Live out who you are in Christ. What's the vocation of a child of God? Yeah. That's the good works. Yeah. Well, I I agree. I have no qualm at all with doing good works. But I keep saying we do those good works in response to the fact that we're saved, not in order to get saved. Good works in order to get saved is legalism. Yep, the indicative ahead of the imperative. Yep. Look at her throwing around big words. Any other questions? Any other comments? It's not the means of salvation but the evidence of salvation yeah I would say that's where the good works fit Conrad did you have something or were you just holding well Martin Luther was wrestling with the very questions that you just brought up am I good enough Uh, I think it was a monk that whispered in his ear to just that's right He, he did it yeah, turned him completely. Actually, if he did 360, he ended up back where he began. But, but I decided not to argue with you mathematically. It's funny that you mentioned Martin Luther because I, one of my favorite Martin Luther quotes I saw just this morning, and his wife at one point had expressed her worry about the future. 
And that's when he said to her, uh, pray and let God worry. And I guess that kind of fits what we were talking about this morning, the life of faith. Just pray, let God worry. Anything else? All right, good. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. You Internet folks in the room can say goodbye to yourselves. Goodbye to my Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.